Welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast here. We're recording on Sunday, April 9th. You're probably going to get this on Monday, April 10th. We're going to be talking all about Perry roubaix today. A little bit of the Basque Country as well. We're just coming out of the Queen of the Classics, what some people would like to call the greatest classic. I don't know that I agree. We'll get into that. Uh, we got lots to talk about, though. We had an amazing finish to the women's race, and the men's race saw... A pretty big star adding to his legend with a lot of other sort of storylines there. So plenty to get into. Uh, you got lots to look forward to with this show, especially because of the amazing cast of analysts we have on this week. As ever, I am joined by Cosmo Catalano, the very intelligent bike racing analyst extraordinaire, uh, Cosmo Catalano. Good to see you again, Cosmo. I'm, I am so pleased you described me as intelligent. Thank you. I feel like if you go to an Ivy League school, you just, like, I don't even, even if you weren't, I mean, wh- who am I to say that you're not having intelligent? Sp- having spent many years at an Ivy League school, uh, a lot of that time you are wondering where the intelligent people are. I see, so. I see. <laughs> uh, also joining us this week, former professional cyclist, current host, and all-around awesome person slash Taylor Swift fan, Abby Mickey. Welcome to the Hello. show. Hello. It's funny you mentioned Taylor Swift. The news broke this morning that her and Joe Alwyn maybe broke up, and I've been just devastated all day. Although I don't know how true the rumors are, so I'm trying to hold on well, to Good hope. thing you have sports to keep you entertained and thinking about other things. And of course, last but not least, one of the finest journalists in the entire United Kingdom, the, the amazing live from Edinburgh, Kit Nicholson. Kit, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back. All right, so I did preface the fact that we're all going to be talking about Paris-Roubaix here. There's a lot to talk about, and let's start with the women's race, which happened an entire 24 hours before the men's race, because the ASO runs the race on a different day, which is a little bit of an unusual thing uh, with, with the way most of these classics run. So the women's race finished a whole day in advance, and we got to see a pretty wild turn of events in that race. We talked ahead of the race. I mean, every, everybody talked. We're not alone in this about how it was SD Works versus the world. Maybe SD Works versus the world with Trek Segafredo leading the way for the world. And that's not really what happened. That's not entirely how things played out. Uh, Cosmo, can you tell us how this race was uh, triumphed in? (laughs) This race was triumphed by an extremely large breakaway, getting an extremely large gap, and an extremely strong chase group being unable to close it maybe when they should have uh, came into the velodrome there was a surprise slip uh, that really set things up perfectly for for Allison Jackson of, of EF SVB Bank Tibco Tibco SVB Bank and yeah she won to the amazement of pretty much everyone and maybe even including herself all right let's talk about the fact that the early break wins possibly the biggest one-day race of the year is a very surprising turn of events. So I guess, let's see, we had the Olympics and then this. I, I can think of the maybe the two biggest times a breakaway has won uh, a big one-day race in the last few years. Let's kind of rewind a little bit to the beginning of the race, the conversation around the start list. Uh, Abby, the the people who were and were not here made a big difference. Yeah, I, you mentioned um, that... SD Works were the out-and-out favorites going into the race, and they have been 
in pretty much every single race so far this spring. I don't want to cut you off. I just want to say I, I said SD Works was, not SD Works were, because that would be wrong. And you're from <laughs> North America, and ha- I'm just very disappointed that you have adopted this clearly incorrect manner of speech now that you've been living in Europe so long. But please continue. This is a hilarious... For those who are listening, whenever Dane used to have to edit my pieces, he would get so angry because I write in British. And and you're not British. I throw U's around like they're nobody's mm. business. Mm-mm. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> we'll keep you, Abby. We'll have you on the team. Thank you. <laughs> um, I've managed to get so, yeah. Abby to call uh, sweaters jumpers, by the way. Oh, true. man. That's the last yeah, straw. It's getting I worse. <laughs> I also referred to football the other day to Teo Gagenhart, and he was really happy to hear that I call it the proper name. Yes. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Please continue <laughs> telling us about the bike race, I guess. Yes. SD Works was the strongest team going into the race, at least we all thought. But when the start list came out, it was, I think that it was pretty clear, at least to us at the Wheel Talk podcast, that SC Works was not lining up with their the strongest team that they could have. The most notable absence was Marlon Rooser, who won Gent Wevelgem solo, is the runner-up for the Olympic time trial and also for the World Championship time trial. And apparently, she had a really bad experience at the first Paris-Roubaix Femme of X-Wift. Fair. It was wild. And she requested not to do the race, which I find really interesting because she's, I think, one of the, would have been one of the favorites given her skill set and the course itself. But yeah, that was kind of the biggest talking point going into the race was just that SD Works, while they've been super dominant this year, Rooster was off the start list. Debbie Vollering was not on the start list. Uh, she is targeting the Ardennes and the stage races later in the season. So for her to take the risk of racing Paris-Roubaix Femme of Egg-Zwift was not not worth it. And SC Works was not as strong as we would have thought. They still had a heck of a team, obviously. Uh, but who knows, maybe that one rider, particularly when the one rider is Marlon Rooster and has this huge engine, I and mean, that's what she's known for, maybe that makes a big difference. I was thinking that uh, Trek really could have used a Sheeran Van Anroy out there, uh, mm. especially watching as the race played out. But I was surprised not to see her on the start list. Do you know anything about that? Or I don't know why Sheeran wasn't on the start list for Trek, but I assume it's because she is also gearing up for more important things later on in the season. Um, but as a cyclocross rider and seeing as bike handling skills are super important in this race. I, I was pretty shocked not to see her on the start list. I did request an interview with her from Trek and was told that she would not be starting like on Tuesday. And I was, I wanted to ask why, but I didn't. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so the break that got away, obviously that ended up being a pretty decisive move in the end. We now know they did get a pretty big gap. Why? Why did they get such a big gap? Was it a surprise that they got such a big gap? It's easy. It's easy to see why they got such a big gap. There was 18 teams represented, 18 riders, 18 teams. And the only major team that missed that gap was that breakaway was Yumbo Visma. And when the other teams, the other four teams that missed the breakaway are just UCI teams, not world tour teams, um, that played a massive role. And like the two biggest teams in the race, 
SC Works and Trek Segafredo. I think with Trek Segafredo, they saw Lisa Klein up there, who's an incredible time trialer and is very, very skilled on a bike. I think they saw her in that break and they were like, oh, well, I think she could win out of that break or it'd be really nice to have her up the road for later. And SC Works looked at that break and they were like, yeah, you're not a threat to us. And Femke Marcus was in there for them. And so neither of those teams were had any impetus to chase. And that meant that the break got six minutes before the first cobble sector. And as we know in Roubaix, if you give them any time before the first cobble sector, there is no room to chase after that. And that's pretty much exactly what we saw. This is something Gracie mentioned on Sunday on the Wheel Talk podcast. It's interesting that they allowed a six-minute gap because they could have been like, oh, we're not super worried, but also like kept them at four minutes, maybe five minutes. But in the end, what we saw was that that extra minute made all of the difference when pulling them back. I think it's really interesting the way this is across cycling. You see this all the time in races, no matter what the race is. When a team puts a rider into a breakaway, they do so sort of with this understanding that, okay, we have a rider up the road. We, quote unquote, don't need to chase. It's not on us. The onus is not on us anymore. As if that is the reason why you chase. As if the reason is sort of this social thing where you're expected to do it. But you don't have to because you have a rider up the road. To me, that that's not always the best strategy. Because, okay, Femke Marcus is a, is a good rider. And she's got a decent chance of winning out of that group. But what is SD Works' best chance of winning? Probably catching the break and allowing one of their three superstars to vie for the win, instead of hoping that Femke Marcus can win out of that group, which, again, she could have, but it's probably not their best chance of winning. And yet, when teams get a rider into the break, they they feel maybe they don't need to chase. And there are a bunch of teams in this situation where, okay, we have a rider in the break, we don't need to chase, so they don't work as hard to try to chase the move down. And that, I think, works against them in the end for everybody but the one team that wins. I would definitely agree with that. I think there were a couple times, uh, especially towards the end of the race, I think we'll talk about it later, where there was a rider who looked like they could win in the break and a rider who looked like they could win in the group, and Works just could not decide, seemed to pick which one should be the, the primary option. Um, but kind of getting back, I think at Roubaix, like, like Abby mentioned, like you can't really chase at Roubaix the way you chase at a normal event. And so uh, even more so this, like, I have a rider so I don't have to chase uh, script sort of goes out the window because you you have riders that are going to ride hard over the cobbles because they want to hold position and they want to you know get other people behind them to have to work harder to drop them to improve their chances overall and you saw a ton of work even with Lisa Klein in the breakaway Trek did a ton of work uh, Elisa Balsamo did a ton of work uh, they, they a lot of the chasing wasn't even really chasing it was just accelerations uh, Lotta Kopecky did a ton of work reducing the gap but I can't I can't, I can't straight-facedly say she was chasing. She just rode hard, hard over the cobbles and brought the, the advantage of the breakdown by 20, 30 seconds each time. I think that there's three reasons that the break was successful. Maybe four. Reason number one is that the women have not yet figured out how to race Paris-Roubaix. And for most races, they it's either been on the calendar long enough or the course is predictable enough that they can figure out how to race it as a women's peloton. But for Perry roubaix it's such a beast of its own that a lot of the women racing, Allison Jackson included, if you listen to the Wheel Talk podcast last week, raced it by raced it like what like they'd seen the med race it. So they got out in front of the race because they knew <laughs> that the cobbles were going to disrupt any 
Henny Chase. Reason number two is the crash at 37 kilometers to go by Elisa Lamborghini. That was probably the num the biggest reason that the brake didn't get caught. <laughs> Uh, I don't know where I was going with the other two reasons. It might come back to me. I like had them in my head, but. <laughs> Is it something to do with the last 10K when they were 10 seconds ahead? They sh really should have been caught. No, I think that that was like, a lot of that was that they were so close that the riders that were like, okay, I can win this were then like, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to conserve what energy I have for the sprint because now we're so close that we're going to catch them. And obviously when they have the situation that they had where they had a bunch of riders in that group that had been in the early break. So they were shelled at that point, a bunch of riders who didn't have any teammates. So they weren't going to work because there were riders that did have teammates. And then you had Trek Segafredo throwing attacks in, in the last like three kilometers that basically just slowed that whole, that group down majorly and ruined whatever chase there had been going. So I feel like at that point, it was so close, but it was also the group two syndrome that we've been seeing happen all year long where group two just cannot organize and just shoots themselves in the foot. Specific to that Eliza, uh, to that Longo Borghini attack, I was really surprised how closely Kopecky was marking her. Like you could see them moving almost as a unit through the group as the attack went and how reluctant she was to kind of come around and close those remaining eight seconds. Like, I I don't see a negative for Kopecky bringing even the whole field. It probably wouldn't have been the whole field. Probably would have just been the two, two of them, maybe one or two other riders across to that group because Femke Marcus rode brilliantly the last 30K, barely did any work. You know, worst case scenario, uh, she's setting up with a great lead out or even setting up to, to make her teammate win. I, but when... Longo Bergini made that last that last ditch effort that did really disrupt the chase. It seemed to me that the gap was closable, and for whatever reason, Kopecky didn't want to come across. Do you think she was tired, or what was the the motivation there? Apparently, um, I mean, uh, the SC Work said after the race that Kopecky, when she crashed in the Lisa Longo crash on sector nine. I believe it was, uh, she thought she broke her ankle. So I think at that point she was a little bit shaken. Like she obviously got back on her bike and didn't have a broken ankle. But I think at that point in the race, like she was real fed up with what, how the race had gone. And we've seen from Kopecky this year that she's incredibly strong, but I think she also maybe has a little bit of a temper that we saw in a couple interviews. And so I think at that point, like, she was maybe so frustrated that she was just not willing to go into the wind. But that is pure speculation from observations that I've made all year. You're, you're an analyst, Abby. I feel like it's your job to speculate. I, I like it when you speculate. <laughs> I want speculation from you. That's good. Let's get some more of that. Yeah, what I saw in, the last, in those last 10, 15K, uh, I think was Alison Jackson and uh, Marta Lack. Yeah. yeah, in the in the breakaway, really going for it. And whether it was just kind of we're having a bloody great time, um, let's crack on and see how, lo how long we last um, or whether they still believed. I mean, they must have still believed. But in the in the group behind, as they got to 10 seconds and, you know, with it was a little bit more than 10K, I think they were they got it into their head, like you were saying, Abby, there's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before we catch these guys but they forgot that they actually had to make it happen. Um, hmm. And then the way that they did, rather than 
I mean, Trek needed to bring that. So they had two or three riders in there, didn't they? They needed to bring the group just that little bit closer, and then one of those flyers might have got them across to the to the butt to the lead group. Um, but it just seemed like, yeah, the curse of Group Two. We should probably talk about the winner a little bit. Oh my God! Can we please talk about the winner? First Canadian to win Paris-Roubaix. <laughs> Men and women, first North American to win Perry Roubaix, men and women, huge deal. She's got a, quite an online following for her dancing moves. Uh, I think she's an extremely popular writer among North American fans and among North American writers too. You can you can just tell she's a writer that is popular with other North American writers. People like her. She's a likable person. She's a likable writer. Why was she the one who went out of that break? What what was it that that uh, kind of put her over the edge there. Uh, obviously, there was a crash late that, that took Femke Marcus out of the equation. And I think that's a big part of it. But that, that's not the only thing. That's not the only part of it. And I think she was uh, one of the favorites going into that uh, the velodrome. I think she would still have won whether or not Femke Marcus was there. But what I, I mean, I was kept waiting for her to launch a late attack in the last 3K. I was waiting for it to happen. She was second or third wheel through the whole of that run into the velodrome. But she was clearly just confident and patient enough to leave it up to her sprint. So I, as soon as they entered the velodrome, she was still second wheel, and then she slotted into that gap on Boris's wheel when uh, when Lack dropped back. She knew that she was going to win from that group, um, so, and she was just the strongest all day, even though she'd been covering and launching her own attacks. Yeah, the positioning was like, she she couldn't have positioned herself better. Through the entire last kilometer into the velodrome, she couldn't have been in better position. And Femke Marcus did a really stupid move, trying to move up on the inside of a track. And uh, because of that, I guess she never would have won Perry roubaix because you kind of got to keep your head on straight to win a race like this. But I think for Allison, she was... She obviously had really good legs on the day because she was a driving force of keeping that break away. But she also just, like Kit said, her patience and her positioning really made all the difference in the world. I think a lot of people were really focused on how much work she did kind of in the the cobbles at M and, and right afterward really kind of driving the group and screaming at everybody like, hey, we can win this. Like she did all that and then like, like Kit mentioned, she just slotted in second, third wheel, kind of let the race go around her in the velodrome. And like, again, yeah, great position. And she said, one of her things she said in the post-race interview was she could see it, like she could see the finish of the race kind of before it happened. As soon as, as soon as Islash pulled off, she was like, yeah, there we go. This is where I'm going right around, going to win it. And it just, it, it really seemed like everything was clicking and she was just completely dialed in to, to, to winning that sprint. I think it's also the finish at Roubaix is such a weird sprint because it's so atypical. Like it's not like a pack sprint in a, in a stage of a stage race. And so there's a lot more just power and going for it. And that is really how Jackson rides kind of all the time. She just, she has that just power to make it off the front, but not necessarily to outkick other people unless everyone is just tired and wrung out the way you end up with the finish of Roubaix. I think she also... She deserves a lot of credit for the way that she played that finale from 10K out until the finish line. So when you're, when they're arriving into Roubaix and getting towards the velodrome, yeah, as you say, she's doing a lot of work. And I think on the one hand, you might think as if you're watching this, well, she's doing too much work. But I think she knew how good she was. And she knew that if they just stay away, she's going to beat everybody. So the important thing in that moment is to stay away. It's one thing if 
Yeah, if it's maybe two of the very strongest riders in the world going head-to-head, it's a really close matchup. Any tiny difference in how much work you do could make the difference between whether you win or lose. But she really was the strongest rider in that group, and I think she knew it. And I think that the fact that she was able to marshal everybody just enough to stay away is a testament to her you know, knowledge of, of, of how good she was on the day and how she was going to win if they could just stay away. So good on her for doing that. And then in the Veldrum, in the actual sprint, I thought she did a really nice job in the last maybe 200 meters kind of positioning herself, kind of going in and out, and then coming around at the right moment. It was just really, really well done. So she was not only the, the strongest, but she also tactically played that perfectly. Uh, in, in a race where, yeah, in, in the run-up, it was... All the conversation was about another team. And then, like, any leftover conversation was about a different team. And then, like, any leftover conversation was about, beyond that was maybe, like, Mariana Voss. Nobody was talking about Allison Jackson's team except maybe unhappy investors in Silicon Valley. So I'm thinking <laughs> that she really played this to perfection on every level. And I, I think you got to really tip your cap. That was just a great performance all around. I have been around her when she introduced herself to someone and she said, I'm Allison Jackson. I'm known for my TikToks. And it brings me so much joy that she can now say, I'm Allison Jackson, winner of Perry Bay Famavec Swift. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and There's only three of those in the world, you know? Like, to do a big dance on camera. Cool. So that was all around great for her. Yeah. Uh, SD seemed to kind of drop the ball a little bit, I would say, uh, th- th- which we don't often see from them. I mean, obviously, we don't see them losing in, in general much. But tactical mistakes are... I, I don't. You don't often see them making them, and it seemed like they let this one get away from them. Well, the it was really interesting in this race. We had race radios uh, that like the car to the teams that we were able to hear. And at one point, the director Lars Boom he told them to remain calm, to stay calm, you know, be patient in the cobbles and stuff like that. So I think there was like an overconfidence for them, which they may have earned this spring with the amount of races they've gone one two and especially with Weebus and Capecchi I feel like there's a chance that Capecchi maybe her form is tapering off a little bit because when she attacked on sector 12 and brand Longoborghini um Elise Shabby and I believe it was Flirty Mackay were able to follow her I think one week ago no one would have been able to follow her so I'm curious if maybe she's just kind of coming down from what's been an incredible couple weeks for her. I mean, she's been almost unbeatable except by her own teammate since Omloop had Newsblad in February. So to hold that form all the way through Perry-Roubaix, Femme of Egg-Swift would have been wild. So I'm not super surprised um, if that is a reason, but I also think that they, they maybe just had a little bit too much confidence in their ability and didn't factor in the fact that it's Perry Roubaix and it's really hard to predict anything and you really have to be on the ball at all times. Yeah, I felt like besides that attack, the only times we saw SD works was in a state of some kind of, well, some degree of desperation. Um, I, certainly early in the race, I mean, Trexigo failure until, I don't know, yesterday morning, um, they had a 100% record of the race. Yes, it's only two editions, but they certainly raced uh, into the first cobble sector like they owned it. Um, obviously, then crashes took them out, a few of them out as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you see Weebus, 
doing the chasing. She's probably a pretty good person to have sticking on the front for a short burst of um, acceleration to try and close a gap. But I'm trying. I'm struggling to think of any other SD Works faces besides Kopecky and Femke Marcus, and then Weber's for a brief period of um, pace setting. They they were otherwise just kind of seemed like they, maybe they were still trying to work it out. There's a bit of that uh, overconfidence, but under preparedness. I was just going to say that it was really fun to watch and really hard to read. I think a lot <laughs> of team directors were probably as clueless as the people on or in the disc. Like every 30 seconds in the discord, they're like, oh, man, the break's going to get away. Oh, wait, no, Kopecky's got this. Oh, wait, the break's going to get away. Oh, no, Kopecky's got this. Man, the discord sounds like a great, fun way to watch, <laughs> watch a bike race. You should just go <laughs> sign up at Escape Collective and join the conversation. Uh, lastly, I know, Abby, you had something to say about Mariana Voss, greatest ever. Who yeah. I just, I think like maybe she wasn't on top form going into this race, but she's, she's obviously still a favorite. She's Mariana Voss. She's won pretty much every single race ever, um, in the world, except maybe like Athens twilight, but you never know. Um, and she was a favorite, an outside favorite, but still a favorite going into the race. And she had a terrible day. Like she had a mechanical going into the first cobbled sector, we saw her chasing by herself and then getting caught behind the remnants of the peloton that was basically being spit out the back on the cobbles and having to dodge through cars. Her team was nowhere to be seen when she was chasing, which I found really interesting. And I feel like it is a very good segue into the men's race because like what tires are Yumbo Visma using? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would just add to that though, that there was a real, resilience to her race because she did finish 10th and she didn't give up you know the, the... for a second i thought she was still going to win this thing like yeah. when the crash <laughs> happened and when the when elisa crashed and she took out basically all the favorites and that whole group that was chasing and there were riders like running around the field to get around all the bodies because there were so many people like piled up on the cobbles and then at, at one point you see the peloton which is like four Yumbo Visma riders lined up and the break was on was coming back at that point and I was like holy crap Voss might actually still win this like there's a chance <laughs> and obviously it didn't work out in the end but I feel like her day you could you could make a movie out of it <laughs> there were times when I was like why is there still a camera on, on Voss she's she's out of it this is over this is this is silly. <laughs> and then she came back into the race and I was like, well, good, good thing. I didn't tweet that. Maybe they were just super interested in the brain helmets. They were like, man, what are these brain helmets? That was something. All right. Speaking of Yumbo Visma riders having mechanicals, let's jump over to the men's race. Uh, Cosmo, what happened to the men's race? There was a surprisingly early elite selection driven clear by uh, Wout Van Aert after a long period of not a break being formed. Uh, they got ahead of the field going through Arenberg. Um, they lost Christophe Laporte, so there was just Matthew Vanderpool. Two of Vander... Well, with Van Aert. Two of Vanderpool's teammates came across. A bunch of other strong riders with no Yumba Vismas came across. They rode as a group for like 80 kilometers. Uh, John Degentol bumped into Matthew Vanderpool in... A situation that didn't look great and fell down. Vanderpool, Van Art attacked, flatted. Van Vanderpool responded to Van Art's attack and rode clear and won the race. And it was, there were like five minutes of excitement where you were kind of like, "What's going to happen?" Throughout the whole day, for me, yeah, Carrefour de Labre was 
chaotic. Every, yeah, it seemed like everything happened at the Carrefour. Um, yep. The cobbled sector, not the uh, supermarket. Uh, the the finish, though, yeah, it, it was a little bit anticlimactic after the Carrefour, which I feel like it, it's everybody is kind of loses there. I'm sure Vanderpool would have preferred to win the race by beating Watt van Aert. You know, if they got to the velodrome together and he still beat them, that's a more entertaining finish. And then anybody who's rooting for van Aert, or certainly if you're rooting for Degenkolb, or anybody else, uh, hoping probably that the race did not have, was not so heavily impacted by mechanicals, by uh, Jumbo Visma losing one rider after another, not just the mechanicals. I mean, they, they, they had a number of reasons. They lost riders uh, that, that could have helped van Aert. I was going to say, I do want to point out that at 110k to go, before any of this had happened, uh, Van Art went back, got a flat changed, and they were talking on Eurosport to Philippe Gilbert, who's on the back, with 109 kilometers to go in the race, and he's already lit, like he has said, uh, Van Dyke had a problem with uh, a mechanical, two or three other uh, Yamovismas had been back from mechanical issues, he said, so they're having really bad luck today, and I think after the whole race in context, we can say that maybe there's something going on other than luck here uh, with whatever they put together for today's event. I would say it's really, really, really hard to make any sort of definitive judgment at Roubaix about that because this race is so random. I mean, it really is. People, people love this race. A lot of people really, really, really like this race. I think if you ask like maybe half of cycling fans, they'll tell you this is their favorite one-day race. Uh I don't. Yeah, I, I still enjoyed watching the race today, the, the men's race today. I think it was a really good example of what can bring this race down a little bit. It can make it really entertaining and fun because it can make somebody who you weren't expecting win the race. It can also take a lot of favorites out. The, the randomness, the chaos of the cobbles. You can just puncture at the worst possible moment. Crashes that you couldn't really do a whole lot about. Uh, there are certainly there are crashes that riders could have done things about and. and there was a moment in the very end of the race where Vanderpool came really, really close to crashing <laughs> on a corner that did not seem necessary for him to be taking that corner so hot. Uh, he avoided it. But there are other crashes in this race that can be pretty unavoidable, and the randomness plays a big role. Uh, today, with the men's race, the randomness, I think in general, probably just made it so that the, the rider who was maybe most likely to win, or at least really neck and neck with one other person did end up winning. So it wasn't like we saw somebody completely random. It was just kind of a shame that we saw a rider who could have been up there with him, Weffen Art, taken out by that sort of randomness, the randomness of Roubaix. The, the, the punctures happened to everybody. And yeah, maybe they happened to Yumbo maybe a little bit more today than normal. But is that really, can we say definitively that's because they weren't prepared? I don't know. I think it's just, just a random chaotic race. I, I The part that I find the most frustrating is that the team that went in the boldest, like really took the initiative ended up getting the worst luck and a team that basically had numbers and was able to leverage those numbers and ride kind of, I don't want to say totally blandly. He definitely never looked like he wasn't the strongest in the race, but it's, it seemed to me to almost punish the sort of initiative that a random race like Roubaix can, can uh, reward. We should talk about the team strength of Alpeson, which is not something that we talk about often with them, not because they're a bad team. I think it's not like they are a bottom-tier team with a superstar rider. It's that Yumbo was so strong all Classics campaign that in general, if you're talking about a strong team, you're talking about how strong Yumbo is. And then it's just sort of everybody else trying to match that level. And you you know going into a race like this that Yumbo has the numbers with, obviously, Van Aert, but they also have Laporte. They have last year's winner, Dylan Van Barla, uh, Nathan Van Hoydunk. They have so many strong riders that you're expecting that team firepower to make a big difference. And at the end of the day, the team with the firepower, the team with 
the only team with multiple riders in that league group towards the very end was actually Alpecin. And it was Vanderpool. Yeah, you expect him to be there. I I personally was not expecting Jasper Philipson to go this deep into this race. Uh, we just haven't seen him do that in the classics like this. Uh, and I was extremely impressed with what he did. I think that bodes really well for them in the future that they can now rely on that strength of the one-two punch there which they already can rely on in more sprinter-friendly races like a Scaldop race or just any sprint stage at a Grand Tour. But in a Classic, to be able to rely on that firepower that they have there, they got to be pretty happy coming out of today with a win and a second place. Philipson did absolutely boss Bruce Depanna, though. Um, not only winning the three-up sprint, four-up if you include uh, Frisson, um, and I only don't include him if you didn't watch it because he dropped for the sprint, um, but uh, yeah, it was so it's 211 kilometers, and he it was part of the driving force in that uh, split that went away to take the win, and uh, he was all over that race. Um, so I, I don't wouldn't say it's necessarily unsur- uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily surprising to see him there. I, I was pretty surprised. To me, the the cobbles <laughs> at Roubaix are so uniquely bad. They're so they're just different. I mean, the, the cobbles in Flanders in general that you're racing on are so tame they're not tame relative to really everything else in the world but relative to Roubaix really isn't Bruce Pano the one that's basically the the don't they call it the classic of the tram lines rather than the cobble classic that's what Ronan calls it there aren't any yeah (laughs) there aren't any cobbles but still for for whatever reason he he, this is really the first year that he's been able to break out like this and, and show this sort of strength at Roubaix and I think maybe in future we will talk a little bit more about the team's strength at Alpecin, maybe a little bit less at Yumbo. Not that Yumbo has not... It's, I feel like it's such a complicated issue with Yumbo because I said this on the on the Discord for the Escape Collective that you should join, that the Yumbo team has had such a great Classics campaign, and yet years from now, who's who's really going to talk about how great Yumbo was this year if they didn't win Centerimo, Flanders, or Roubaix? It's a shame that I think, and, and that's something that I think becomes more and more prevalent every year that we only focus on those monuments. Uh, but I think this is a disappointment. This this classic campaign is a big disappointment for Yumbo to not come away with one of those wins when they were favored to win all of them, really. I mean, they, they were they really were favored to win every one of these races because of Watt van Aert. And with Christophe Laporte as a great backup, they came, came away with, with none. They, they win none of them. And I think that they're going to be pretty disappointed about that. Okay, so... Talking about Vanderpool winning, we did mention there was a rider who came into contact with Matthew Vanderpool on the car for, and his day his day didn't end. He still actually finished pretty well, but poor Jean Degenkolb, uh, at this point in his career, to be up there in the lead group in this race, and then to have a crash take him out, there was... Um, there were some people who were very unhappy with the way that that crash happened. I think some people really pointed the finger at, at Alpecin and, and, and Vanderpool. To my eyes, from the from the overhead, it didn't look that egregious or intentional. Certainly not enough to to you know penalize Vanderpool. Uh, no matter what, though, it, it's a bummer. It's a bummer is what it is for Degenkolb. And he he had ridden so well to get into that group. Like I think he said afterwards, he was by far not the strongest in the group. But like he sussed out that early surge from uh, from Yumbo, like got in on it, did enough work that he wasn't dangling at the back. No one was looking at him to pull. 
but not so much work that he was ever closing gaps. He followed everything. He seemed to have really good anticipation on the cobbles of where he could let space go and other riders come in. He just, everything he did to that point was really kind of perfect, at least from a, you know, being outgunned situation at Roubaix. And just that one moment where he was too far over to the side and had no other option when a little change in line happened, two riders in front of him. It's just tough. I feel like it's also worth noting that the last time that Dagan Cole won a world tour race was the Paris-Roubaix stage of the Tour de France in 2018. Um, so this would have been, obviously he's had a shocker of a couple years ever since that team camp crash of Argo Shimano, team giant Shimano, um, way back in 2015 was that? The now um, team DSM for those at home who have not been following every name change for the last decade. Correct. Team Giant Alpeson in 2015 um, had a really nasty team crash, and a lot of the riders got really hurt, and John Dagenkolb was one of them. And he went to Trek Segafredo in 2017, had a couple you know, good rides, but the last time he won a World Tour race, he's won stages of Tour of Luxembourg. He won a stage, I believe, in 2021. Um, but the last time he won a world tour race, last time he won a big race was the Roubaix stage of the Tour de France in 2018. So for him to be in the winning move of this race today would have meant everything to him. And you saw it when he crossed the line and he was crying so hard on the ground that he was shaking. And like, I, I feel like I'm going to tear up just thinking about it. Cause it's not the, the amount of setbacks this guy has had to fight through in order to be in that group today is really incredible and that he was that close. I I don't know. I feel like maybe he wasn't in a great position. Like obviously he was in the gutter. He was trying to ride on the smoother part, which was not on the cobbles. And when Vanderpool came around to attack, he was not in a great position, but I also feel like common courtesy, maybe, maybe just look, maybe just give it a little, little side eye. See if there's someone right there. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, That's I have to be on I mean, yeah, I, I also, I was just, as soon as Degenkolb bent down, that was like, I don't know, not the end of the race for me because there was still a great group there. But it was just like, because I, I love an underdog who, who doesn't. And he, although he was the only former Paris-Roubaix winner in that group, it was quite a while ago. And he was definitely, probably had the biggest underdog status besides the remnants of the breakaway he would, dropping away so yeah and then and I know it was not Vanderpool's fault but when he fell down and then when Wout van Aert five seconds later uh, flatted and Vanderpool went off I don't know I felt like the cycling gods had looked down from heaven sent a puncture down and missed yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, yeah so it was just a kind of heartbreaking well not even five minutes it was barely a minute probably Especially yeah, that was tough. And watching him cross the line was just oh. for the enjoyment of the race. That was tough. I, I do think. I mean, I I think we. I did point this out earlier. I think. I don't think it's fair to say that Vanderpool won because of X Y Z. Because at the end of the day, I think he could still have won. I think there's a really mm. good chance he still wins, even with those same riders in the group. But I think it's a much more enjoyable finish if we get to watch that happen, rather than getting to watch him just sort of uh, cruise over the last ten minutes. 
you know, we talk about luck so much. It, you need so much luck. We talked about it yesterday as well. But um, yeah, th just that it was so condensed into that short, uh, that short period, and it was, and so much luck happened to those around him. So much bad luck happened to those around him. That was it. Just it wasn't a great line in the story that made Paris Roubaix. Yeah, it was a it was a bummer. And I think w regarding how the, the the bad luck was squeezed into a small time, we, we should note that Christophe Laporte being out of the equation did not help Van Aert. Uh, had he been there, maybe things maybe things are different. If if uh, Christophe Laporte is in that finishing group, that that lead group when the puncture happens. While we're also talking about Jumbo Visma, I mean, I think Van Baal was in the same group as Van Hoydonk, was he not on the Arenberg, or Arenberg, close yeah. to anyway? And Van Baal hit the ground hard, and so if they'd had, you know, that extra body, um, Afini also came down earlier in the day. He was doing a lot of work earlier in the day, so he might not have been there anyway. But it was just, you know, you can't. It, hindsight is a wonderful thing. You can't help these things. But yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of bad luck falling in one direction. The, the gap between Van Barla and uh, Vermeesh and uh, Philipson on the Arenberg, like the crashing to not crashing gap was one or two riders. Uh, it was super close. Um, we didn't see the actual crash. You saw the immediate aftermath. Like you can still see the lead moto and there's five riders there. The last one I think is, is Vermeesh. And then there's you know, three or four bike bike rider length gap, and then bodies on the ground, and at the bottom of the bodies is Van Barla. So, like that is the margin by which these races are decided in positioning. Sometimes. All right. Speaking of rough classics campaigns, Sudal Quick Step. Yeah, I can't remember Sudol, a time when they were this bad. They had a just god awful classics campaign. The best result that they achieved all spring was third at Bruges Japana with uh eve's lampard there was a well in that same crash we've just been talking about with van Baal, casper asgreen was caught up and he was sitting there almost almost with his uh you know the crook of his with his knees held in his elbows just like oh for god's sake man not again <laughs> and um it reminded me of a i tweeted it this evening that i reminded of it reminded me of an image of le salmon when he crashed in the last kilometer and he's just sitting there just like staring into the distance and it really just, I don't know, pulls at the heartstrings. They really have had no luck. And the, basically, did, did we see anyone besides Eve Lampert in the chase group doing anything except for chasing back into a group from that team? Seneschal tried to get into a couple of moves early on, but otherwise they were all just chasing all day. I, was gonna say, I think I saw Seneschal flat out of something, but I didn't, you know, he wasn't in the front of it doing work. So I think we talked about before that, to me, this year, it seems like Asgreen is really, it's, it's all in, like, he, he's the guy. They need him to be good. And if something happens, that's it. They don't really have enough strength. Yes, Lampard is good. Is he good enough? I don't, I don't think so. It's interesting to see Tim DeClerc trying to get into the early breakaway. Well, trying to, trying to get into the moves. And it didn't look like the whole, the kind of Tim DeClerc chasing down moves. He was in the first two or three riders with, I don't think anyone particularly notable. So it wasn't like he was chasing down Jumbo Visma. Um, so that, I mean, that's maybe them trying to throw some innovation into their plans or give Tim DeClerc a day in the breakaway, see if he can do an Alison Jackson. I don't know. Um, it's It was just confusing at that point. I was going to mention, kind of based on seeing Tim DeClerc more active in maybe trying to start something than chasing it down, this, this is the second weekend in a row where we've had a huge, fast opening to a to a monument where no break has gone or has been able to go. 
And I'm sort of wondering, if is this becoming the trend? Is this the pattern that the teams are so strong and so aware that you know they are willing to basically do 100K of leading out uh, before launching a, a strong domestique or a leader, even as we saw today, up the road? They did have a really fast tailwind in that early phase, and, and apparently they had the same last week. Um, so that might have had something to do with it. And but yeah, it took what hundred kilometers nearly for anyone to go away, and it stayed what ninety seconds up the road. Also, if I'm watching on Saturday and then I'm racing on Sunday, I'm thinking I might want to try to get into that breakaway. So there might be a little <laughs> bit more competition there than normal. End of the day, Matthew Vanderpool, fourth monument of his career. He's had a heck of a season with a Milan Sanremo win, now a Perry Roubaix win, and. For those keeping track at home, that's four to Van Aert's one. Yes, Van Aert has won a green jersey at the Tour de France, uh, but I think they are inextricably linked in the rivalry department. We always talk about them as rivals for good reason. And at the moment, Vanderpool is he's in the lead. So I, I, that's got a great on Van Aert. Now he has to wait just uh, you know, a casual 11 months to get another shot at uh, these sorts of races. Because that's that's what they're really going to target. Obviously, the tour is a big target for Van Aert as well. But in the monuments department, in the classics department, advantage Vanderpool right now. Fortunately for Jumbo Visma, this weekend was not all bad, because they do have a rider who won a bike race in France last year. That happens to be a pretty big deal, and that rider Jonas Vingago has had a. I kind of threw no fault of his own. Everybody's talking about his big rival for the Tour de France. Uh, for the first few months of this year, because Tadej Pogacar just keeps winning, and winning races that most Tour winners don't go on to win, like the Tour of Flanders. Vingago, I think, kind of needed a a statement. And over in the Basque Country, which, yes, that was going on while the Classics were happening. Yes, the Classics are great. I love the Classics, but we should talk a little bit about the Tour of the Basque Country before we close things out here. Over at the Atulia Basque Country, Jonas Vingago took the win pretty pretty commandingly. He was clearly the strongest rider in this race, and I think purely from a statement standpoint, it's a big deal for him. He won O Gran Camino earlier in the year, but then at Paris-Nice, he was a measly third place uh, to Tadej Pogacar, and I think he needed to come out swinging and, and show at the Itzulia Basque Country that he is, yeah, he's the defending Tour de France champion. He's the guy that wins this race by more than a minute, and for a race that while it has a ton of hills, does not have a, really any tall mountains, to win by more than a minute, it's actually pretty impressive in the Basque Country. It's a, there was really little question that Jonas Vingago was dominating this race. He won three stages, including the last stage, which he won by attacking while he was in the leader's jersey. Uh, this was not a rider who was just going to sit around. He, perhaps inspired by his big rival, Tadej Pogacar, decided, I'm wearing the leader's jersey, whatever, I'm attacking anyway, I'm going to win this stage, I'm going to crush everybody. And he won the last stage by almost a minute, 47 seconds. Uh, and it, to me, it's just all about that statement. It's, it's him saying, hey, remember me, I'm the guy that won the Tour de France, that Tadej Pogacar guy's cool, but I'm the guy that won the Tour de France last year, and I'm here, uh, you're going to have to pay attention to me come July. And the, yeah, like you say, he really didn't need to go and win, like he did yesterday. Um, big, big statement. I think one of the things that it shows, besides it being a psychological assault, um, is that there are some names just behind it. I mean, obviously, on the podium, you've got Lando and Izaguirre, who is a very good rider and who does particularly well at the Basque Country, maybe not a contender for the Tour de France. 
But then there are other names like James Knox and Esteban Chavez, uh, who behind them were having really, really good races. I mean, Knox finished second yesterday. He had a really bad year last year. So he's coming into some really good form. I'm not saying that James Knox is a Tour de France contender, but it's just, you know, it, I think Vingegaard was going to win this race. Uh, he, he didn't need to win three stages while he was at it, as Primoz Roglic did as well last week or a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's a nice pattern for Jumbo Visma. But I was really interested to see, while Vingegaard was having his fun, um, the other riders who were really starting to lay down some markers and show that they're back. And I'm particularly happy to see that Chavez is one of them. Yeah, mentioning Chavez, I mean, he, he's now been very active in two back-to-back stage races. He was very active at the Volta Catalunya and then again at the Itzulia Basque Country. Has, he does not come away with a top 10 in either race to show for it. He was 11th in Catalonia and he's 12th in the Basque Country, which is a shame because he, just, he really did animate this race. He, he was making attacks in, in both, both of these races. He was making it interesting. And I think he was reminding us of why he's such a likable character. He's, he's a likable winner. He's somebody that a lot of people root for, and I think we saw again why. I think he's the perfect cyclist, or maybe, I mean, I, I would phrase it as the greatest cyclist, but people would shout at me. It, and the reason I say it is because he's obviously he wins quite a bit, or he certainly has done in the past. He's a very likable character, but he's also a great advocate for the sport. Um, and uh, I think he's basically the the whole package. Um, and anytime I see him go up the road, uh, bouncing out of the pedals with that smile or grimace, depending on, I don't know, how much effort he's putting in. Um, you, I mean, you can see the whole, his whole history, his whole backstory, that horrible crash in 2012 or 2013. It's all kind of etched in every movement that he makes. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I've never met a person who doesn't appreciate a Chavez attack. Yeah, he definitely, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. I think he, He's an easy-to-root-for character who it's nice to see him. Yes, he didn't finish quite in the top 10, but he was good enough that I think certainly those those placings are, are you know, definitely possible for him this year. At the end of the day, though, Jumbo Visma and, and particularly Jonas Vingago just crushed it. I think they have to be happy with this, at least, if they're not going to be happy with how Sunday went. Uh, also, Mika Landa had a pretty good race. One of those times where I think it just... It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. It doesn't. It seems like it doesn't really matter what the race is for Landa. He's gonna be second or third best. Like he seems to ride up or down to the competition as needed, to be at about that level, maybe fourth or fifth. He's not gonna finish fiftieth, you know. But he's probably not gonna win either. Either. And uh, yeah, it is what it is for Landa at this point. You 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 started this segment kind of praising Vingigo's performance. Would you still put him? Does, does this performance move him up your mental chart of strongest uh, stage racers this season? Or is he still kind of where he was when he started it? I think you have to look at everyone behind him. And it's the same for Pogacar. I think what this week showed is how far those two still are above everybody else. And whether Vingegaard can match Pogacar if the Tour de France was in two weeks, I don't think that we have an answer for that. Or at least if we do, it's not in Vingegaard's favour. But what it has shown us is that, I mean, and Vingigo did a lot of this week. Maybe, it's, maybe a lot is not fair, but he spent a lot of time with Attila Valter, but otherwise his team didn't, wasn't able to do as much or didn't need to do as much. Maybe that was the fact. They were too, they were, he was confident and they just didn't need to do as much work as the likes of Barry and Victorious. But everybody else is really having to ride up to those two 
finger girl versus Pogacar, which is what it's going to be again this summer. I think that's what we learned. That's what I learned. And of course, the other two big names in the sort of stage racing department are riders who are going to be contesting the Giro. So I think you could say that Roglic and Evenepoel are just right up there as well. But it, that's that's a whole different conversation because they're going to be going head to head in an entirely different you know grand tour, and that's actually coming up in about a month. All right, that's enough Monday morning DSing. Let's look ahead a little bit to what's coming up in the world of bike racing. We are leaving the the cobbles behind. Basically, you got Brabantse Pale on Wednesday, and then we head into the trio of very hillier classics that. We like to call the Ardennes, even though, you know, the Amstel Gold Race doesn't actually go through the Ardennes Forest. But whatever. It, it's a it's a hilly classic. Who cares about geography? Uh, it's a very fun race if you like road furniture, if you like really short, steep, punchy climbs, uh, if you're Dutch. There's going to be there's gonna be some action for you a week from this weekend. Uh, men's and women's races, I think, at Amstel. In the last few years, we've been treated as some really entertaining Amstels. They've done a nice job with that course, kind of revamping things a little bit to make it great in the last few years. There was a, a period where things got kind of stale. Uh, but but in the last few years, Amstel has been really good on both sides. So this year's Amstel Gold Race, I think we're, gonna, we're going to be treated to the return of Tadej Pogacar, who did not race Peri-Roubaix, which... Would have been interesting, this time. To, to say the least. Didn't race it this, this time. time. Yeah, this time. Uh, it's hard to imagine that he won't do well at Amstel because it has climbs, and he's a decent climber, I would say. It's something he's pretty good at. Uh, that's going to be fun to watch, uh, the the, uh, the Amstel action. And then we're going to get into, yeah, Flesh and, and Liege, Besto and Liege after that. So lots of climbing ahead, lots of racing for riders who skew a little more on the climber end of the spectrum in the next few weeks here. Uh, meanwhile, on the women's side, there's a Dutch rider who's a pretty good climber as well, Demi Volering, uh, leading a team that's going to be maybe maybe jonesing for some revenge, uh, hoping to put away put put to bed the frustrating Roubaix they just had in SD Works. Uh, another good storyline there. Although after this week, I, I'm a little afraid to say it's all about one team or another team because it, apparently it was all about EF Tipco SVB this week. Lots to look forward to. It's the beauty of bike racing, Dane. You can't actually predict it. Well, I think the bookies do pretty well. I think they make a lot of money, so clearly they, they've they pulled it off. The bookies are looking at the money going in and the money coming out. That's They're true. Not, I, but they I set the it... lines to begin with, right? And then the money comes in certain ways. Anyway, I know that you make money if you're betting on Kermesses in Belgium and people are betting on Ronin. <laughs> and his bike has issues. That's one thing I know. If you missed the recent placeholders, you got to go check it out. Uh, Ronan is maybe retired, but he's not really retired and still getting out there on the bike. Anyway, that's it for us, the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. We're glad you joined us. It was a great weekend of bike racing, and there's more to come, especially if you like short, punchy climbs. Until next time, Cosmo, Abby, Kit. Great talking to you. Great talking to you too, Dan. It's a video. <laughs> Thanks, Cosmo. So no Abby gave see. me the peace sign, but you can't see that if you're a listener, so. <laughs> Thanks, Abby. I was waiting for someone to say something, and I realized you would be unable to edit these gestures. <laughs> but I'm going to keep all this because it, it gives the listeners a great understanding of how this all works. All right. We'll see you next time.